0: Hey, everybody, this is Charles Hain with the No Film School podcast. I'm here with editor in chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Managing editor and writer, Joe Light. Hi. Writer, Jason Hellerman. Hello. Filmmaker and writer, Kath Tolentino. Hey. And filmmaker, cinematographer, and writer, Todd Blankenship. Hey, how's it going? And this week, we're going to be talking about Comic Con returns in a COVID fashion. We will also be talking about the developments in the IA contract approval process and the relationship between that and the U.S. Constitution and the Electoral College. All right, so first story this week. Over Thanksgiving weekends, Comic-Con has returned to San Diego in a pandemic form. I, I didn't go. Other people covered this in more detail, so take it away.
1: Yeah, I'll just intro real quick. This is one of the first things. I think this is actually the first thing we've covered live in person in the pandemic era, which is exciting that you know people kind of milling around and back into a giant indoor space and talking about these things. It was weird and unique and startling and strange, Um, But also really refreshing and nice. And of course, you know, a new variant dropped right when we arrived, which added some spice to it all. But, you know, Jason and Joe, who are here with us today, were both there on the ground hitting up a lot of panels. Honestly, one of the things that struck me the most is that, you know, I've been to Comic-Con before. It is a very industry-heavy event. Uh, And I moderated a panel there, which is part of why we went. I never realized just how much, and it makes sense, how many people there are creators, whether it's they're creating costumes or they're interested in getting into this industry or they're just people who are artistically motivated. It it makes a lot of sense, but I never saw it through that lens, and it was really eye-opening to me. We were there kind of to cover for the No Film School audience, and I felt like there was actually a ton there. That was of interest to our no film school audience and quite a big crossover, so that was sort of a pleasant surprise. but I want to you know Joe and Jason were in the trenches a little more than me, so I want to hear what they their takes
2: yeah, I think the thing is is that it always gets overshadowed by the Hall H news or who people are seeing. I think it just I feel like it might have always been that way it's just the focus is always more on those events it gets drowned out, but I think that Yeah, I I think the audience is a perfect one for no film school. And the content was perfect for us. It it is a lot of creators. It is people who are curious and and passionate about making films or TV or shorts. So yeah, it really made sense for us to be there. And I had a great time. It was definitely different. Um, Jason can speak to that. He's been at uh, Comic-Con on quote unquote normal years, but I really had a great time.
3: It definitely felt like it was about a third as packed that I've covered Comic-Con before for sci-fi and a couple other places and i guess i've been to the san diego comic-con five years almost in a row i stopped going because of covid and then got you know took a year off and got to come this year it certainly was different you know but just to echo what joe and george have already said i felt like the show did a really good job pivoting into who could be there right and then highlighting the people that were you know so many of the panels we went to were for people like our audience and honestly like people like us like you know myself like a writer someone who's interested in directing in different mediums like hearing from professionals who are a little bit further ahead but certainly not the hall h names it's not like you have you know like these huge uh like the Rousseau brothers being like here's how we did avengers endgame it really was uh, more of an indie atmosphere and indie feel and i really enjoyed listening to those people talking you know sharing and then also getting to walk the floor and as much as i'd love to spend a lot of money on huge hollywood merchandise uh, actually getting to talk to writers and people who were writing their own books shooting their own web series doing different things i think that was a really special thing especially in the chaos of where the world is right now just being able to you know slow down see people do what they're passionate about
2: oh i was going to ask jason normally what it's like for cuz i saw a lot of people just shooting their own footage is that they had like gimbals and their cell phones or you know, I ran into a friend who was shooting on a red camera. Is it normal for people just be walking around and shooting their own stuff as the convention is going on? It's definitely normal,
3: but I'll say that it's usually so crowded. It's not that practical. As someone who's gone through with a camera crew to get shots from the floor, it's usually so crazy. You're usually setting up on the second level and then shooting down, or you have to, you know, like really clear out space. This really felt like there's room to walk. You know, I never felt boxed in. It honestly felt, like I said, almost a third is crowded as normal. So it was cool, yes, seeing people walk around and really get the experience without it being on top of each other.
1: On the other hand, it felt crowded compared to what we're used to the last couple of (laughs) years, because I haven't been around that many people in a very long time. So that was sort of shocking in a way. I mean, what's cool is, you know, I'll say credit to Comic-Con for this, San Diego Comic-Con. They make sure that you have been vaccinated. They want to see proof. They give you a wristband that they need to see before they let you in. You need to wear a mask at all times. Panelists and moderators wear masks. So there were a lot of, you know, good practical things in place to try and make it feel like okay, we're safe doing this, and I appreciated that. But it was weird, you know, being in that space and it's weird to even picture how packed and, and thinking back to how packed those, you know, there's lines upon lines in there for those installations and, and the buying merch and stuff. So it thinking to when those installations were coming from that, those bigger, quote unquote, Hall H. And for those who don't know, Hall H is where they play the big trailers and they have the big news drops, basically. And this year, that wasn't really a part of it. It was way more about, you know, like panels I sat in on were often below the line craftspeople talking about how they get their start and what they do, which is right up our alley. And so I would encourage people who listen to the podcast and are familiar with No Film School to definitely consider to check it out because it's not just for fans. I think there's a sense that it's like a fan event and it is, but it's there's a big crossover between fan and creator.
2: Yeah. I think that was one thing that was so interesting in my panels too, was I definitely went to a couple where I could tell that People were really excited about either, you know, it was an actor who's from Farscape or someone who had been involved with Star Trek. Like there were a few that were a little bit
4: wild and that,
2: yeah, (laughs) that I was like waiting in really long lines to get in and concerned that I wasn't going to be able to get in. But even in those, it was very much like the villain ones that I covered. They were just very excited talking about like the big villains, Loki and Doc Ock, but they were also talking about it from a storytelling perspective and a a producing perspective. And they even asked at the start of that panel, like, who in here is a fan, who in here is a writer. And then they tailored the panel based on the responses that they got. So I don't know if that is normal. I don't know if it was just for the panels this year, but I really was kind of surprised by that and enjoyed that aspect of the panels. I definitely think it's normal. It's just you have to seek it out more
3: because let's be honest, like the years I'm there when it's like Game of Thrones, last season's happening, you know what I mean? Like you are trying to go see Khaleesi, you know what I mean? You're like, (laughs) I gotta so, so it's, it's almost like a different priority switch, but yeah, I mean, look, I sat in on a lot of great panels. We wrote about all of them. You know, one in particular was just one on genre that I thought was just so enthralling. You know, they had seven authors up there talking um, and these were uh, all women actually Incredibly, that like had worked in film, television, comics, and books. So it was like, you know, writers from all over talking about how they play with genres and writing tropes and expectations. And and I sat there and you know took so many notes, not just for my article, but just for like personal use that I thought were just so incredible. And it felt like again like a masterclass or something equivalent, you know, for an hour and a half of just people who not only have done it in one medium but across mediums and not one genre but across genres, uh, talking about how they approach storytelling their process, outlining, writing, just things that I was like, oh, like this, not only is it inspirational, but I just felt like so, there's so much tutelage, just like, again, like, just by being there.
2: Yeah, I'm excited if we, I hope we get to go back, but also a little nervous. I don't know what it's going to be like. (laughs) It'll be crazier. Yeah, we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait in line.
1: Yeah, yeah. the scale of it is certainly like a completely different animal. And, you know, it's also funny because like what a lot of people go there for or want is not was not really a part of it this time, but for us it was kind of, it was like it was more what we were interested in and what we think no film
0: school would be interested in. But but so yeah, Joe, it in was, some ways, was this kind of like a special experience because of COVID. I think, yeah, I think it kind of was. I think that
1: it made it, I mean, they called it special edition, but I think that it was, or something like that. But I think that it was, uh, it made it a unique experience. I've heard people bemoan the loss of the old Comic-Con, like the early, early, like where it was more about people buying, selling, and trading actual comic books and to be honest that's what this felt like on the floor there was way more booths that were just like hey i got a bunch of comic books here and like other people or indie comic creators like people who were launching their comics like that that's kind of the the origin of it i think and so that you know when you pull away the like i just want to see like the cast of hbo's latest and you know i want to see who's going to be in the new blah 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 like you pull that stuff away suddenly you see the thing that's there but is is obscured a little but yeah you know movie fans television fans there is a inspiration to create there almost always i would say like the kind of fan who shows up to a convention mm-hmm. is a deep fan who who has some interest in like the how and the why and i think that's where uh, this became such an interesting you know, foray for the No Film School, you know, brand.
3: I Look, I grew up going to comic book conventions. Shout out to Wizard World Philadelphia, <laughs> which I, I've been to probably 10 to 15 times in a row from, from a young age until, you know, my early 20s when I moved then to Los Angeles. Look, if you can't get to Comic-Con, find a con in your hometown. Find one nearby. Do something. I, I think the power to be around other creative people is... Um, so underrated and just being with these people, not only sharing your stories and talking, but look, I stopped by a booth from a comic book writer whose name I can't remember, but his project was called Cat Noir. And it was such a funny book. And we just talked a lot about it's about a cat who lives in outer space, solving noir crimes on like a (laughs) traveling spaceship. And I just was like, man, like that's, that's cool. Like, it's cool to see how people's minds work. It's it's interesting. It, you know, if if nothing else, it should spark the creative bug in you to either chase your your wild side or or just do something. It, it was fun, and I think you know, I would really encourage anyone out there to to seek it out in your hometown, um, big or small. The way we get inspired, I find, is just by other people and being around those people. Yeah.
0: What year did you start going to WizardCon? I went in 94 in Philadelphia. Okay, yeah.
3: I probably started in, like, 1997. I'm trying to think how old well, I was. We, we, I was we, we
0: didn't quite overlap. Yeah, pre-9-11.
3: Pre- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. Whatever. I was cool still
0: there three years before you. I get three years of cool points out yeah, of that.
3: you win. <laughs> I know, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I think Word that... You're battle champion. I think, Jason, you bring up an interesting
1: point there, though, which is that, like, I didn't really get that out of walking the floor. And, I, and in hindsight, I wish I had spent more time looking at and examining what people were creating. I was kind of just overwhelmed by the big installations and the big products and the brands that I know and the, you know, trinkets I might buy for people. Like, there is so much there of, of like what creative people are doing. I know a number of people who came out to LA and started their careers here and have had great ones who came out with comic books, like indie comics that they were writing and drawing. And that's kind of what got that. And nowadays, that's even more of a thing. But that was the path. And so there's a lot to be said for that and for the, the meeting other creators that way. So I, I didn't do that. I will think about doing that next time, perhaps.
5: It, it sounds pretty cool being able to actually like walk around at Comic-Con because <laughs> I've i been a number of times myself and I've usually been the guy with the camera sweating and, and having to <laughs> uh, you know, bump, bump shoulders with every person in, in existence. And, you know, it takes like, Twenty minutes to walk thirty feet or whatever. So that sounds that sounds kind of kind of nice. Like I'm actually kind of curious. How, how much uh, usually Comic Con like thirty percent of the event is spread out into the city at the various you know local restaurants and stuff. How much of that was going on? Was there like parties and dinners, or was it just kind of mostly about what was going on in the convention center?
3: Way more convention center. I mean, look, there was a really cool Peacemaker the HBO show with John Cena uh, DC Comics installation. Um, That was really neat that we walked past. It was an obstacle course. There was one for La Brea, the network drama, where there was like a fake earthquake that you could see that, like, the earth has opened up, blah, blah. blah. But, like, other than those two things, which were, you know, in comparison to every other installation I've ever seen at Comic Con, much smaller, uh, there really weren't. That many things, you know, usually I think it's like Fifth Avenue is full of other things. Like you said, Todd parties or just things. I remember I like a couple of years ago, there was an amazing like a museum or a lot like I don't know how to pronounce it, but those stop motion people that brought you Paranorman and all the other good things but, like they had insulation. There was nothing like that this year. Really, it was concentrated to the floor. And I think you know, look, in this circumstance, better for it. It, it was, a, it felt like a soft opening of something that's really cool that I'm sure will go back to the bombastic ways beforehand. But again, like the emphasis was truly placed on creators and idea people this year. And, and I think, like, if cool. you read the articles about our, the panels we saw, it's, it's evident to see that. And I think it was hard to leave not inspired, you know, like I, I like, I remember like, I got up in our Airbnb at night and was like, let me just like, maybe crank out a couple screenplay pages based on those genre ideas I heard. You know, like it really was fun. Awesome. And, and you know, yeah. Electric.
0: Uh, not to make everything tech, but like it really makes me, I was, I've was i been frequently saying I don't think I'll go to NAB the first couple of years NAB is back, but now it kind of makes me think I do want to go to NAB the first year it's back because the first year it's back will be small and weird. And small and weird sounds great. That's very
1: true. I yeah, you know, I think that if things are done the right way and it feels like this was, you know, we'll find out. <laughs> but I but I think if things are done the right way, there is a real advantage to these things getting smaller and they may stay smaller because I think a lot of people aren't going to be interested in You know, not only not wearing masks inside the whole time, or maybe you know, sadly not wanting to get vaccinated, or whatever it is, like, or just the risk factor that there is, you know, no matter what you do, small risk. I think that that all could contribute to it being a, you know, these things get scaled down or change, and I think that's yeah, that is kind of cool. And as far as the tech side goes, it this felt like it reminded me a lot of NAB for a different aspect. Like when we attend NAB for No Film School, as our audience knows, we are looking at it from a very like creative lens, you know, like what are the tools? How are they going to help you? What's emerging? I never thought that Comic-Con or Comic-Cons have this vibe, but it felt kind of like the almost the writer version or the craft version. Like it had a, the vibe, you know, of just like, again, I really surprised me because I never considered it as being a place like kind of having workshopy qualities, but it definitely did. And it definitely got me excited. You know, so many things pre-mid uh, pandemic, you, you never realized how much you valued something until you go back to it. I think that also was part of the experience was like, oh my God, it's actually really cool to hear from people in person to see things happening, like to get out of the Zoom bubble.
5: Well, and it's like, you know, a, a thing that I've always had anytime I go to NAB and, and also definitely all the, um, I've been to a bunch of cons, but mainly the, the Comic-Cons that I've been to, like it's kind of this feeling of like, oh yeah, like these are my people. Like this is like my crew. We're all excited about the same thing and that shared experience and all that. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of that that went missing for a very, very long time.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like not to be like super sappy, but it's like you walk in and I was like, man, I miss you people, you know, <laughs> like fellow nerds. We can only, you know, <laughs> I can hear Charles on the podcast, but you can't hug these people in real life. And it was cool, you know, seeing everybody embracing something that I think has been lost the, that these last couple of years, like a community style thing. Um, it was very fun to look at it that way.
1: Yeah. And there is a, just a general understanding that we on every panel I saw, every person that everybody was like. We're trying to figure out how to do this again, like talk in person and be in person or like, you know, all of it. Like, so there was also that, like the training wheels coming off and like, <laughs> like it was just a unique, you know, for that reason. But yeah, I, it made me excited for every, all of these kinds of events getting back because in the new normal, because if it's done safely and, and all that, it's
0: great to, and it's
1: inspired. It, it gets you re inspired and, and excited again.
0: All right. In our next subject, the continuing labor battle between the workers of the film industry represented by IATSE and the studios continues. So, you know, the last stage, we had a 98% strike authorization vote, which meant 98% of workers in the film industry were like, yeah, fuck this. Something needs to change. And that's like, you know, when you, I've been doing, I'm doing a labor history podcast right now called Distorted by Glamour. You should all check out episode two, which is up this week. And so I've been doing a lot of union research lately. And like, you don't get 98% strike authorization votes very often. People are ready for change in film. Within a couple of days of that, an agreement was reached. The general feeling on the agreement was, let's say the most charitable way to put it was that what the union started negotiating for over the summer was mostly achieved. But by the time we got there, the union membership, had gotten more radical and wanted more. And so a contract that maybe if we'd seen it in March would have felt like, oh, these are some gains. By the time October came and people were like, no, 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 we want radical change. We don't want our work to continue to look like this. Came out with a contract that was like still basically going to leave us working crazy hours. And I think that the general mood and membership has been very frustrated. You know, obviously social media is a bubble, so you end up r- running into your own people and and people know I, I'm the eight-hour workday guy. I, I, I want to shoot movies eight-hour days. I don't see why we don't. So obviously, I run into a lot of people like that. But what I was really wondering what would happen is, so the contract gets agreed on, and then the membership has to vote on it. And the vote happens, not last weekend, the weekend before, but we didn't get to talk about it last week. And the vote happens, and it passed with 49.6% of the vote. Now, you will notice that 49.6% of the vote is not a majority of the membership.
4: And so the reason that, so why you, Sorry, when you say that it passed, you mean that 49.6 voted to keep the basic agreement that they that they had agreed to. The so,
0: new the new basic agreement. The new basic, yes. okay, And that passed because Ayatsi has a basically electoral college style system where there's 13 divisions of Ayatsi and each one gets to vote yes or no and they all individually voted yes and that led to all of them having to abide by it, even though if you look at, if you total up everyone who voted, the same way with the American presidential system, if you look at everybody who voted, Biden won 9 million more votes than Trump, but it was a close election because of the Electoral College. This is a case where literally a minority of members are voting that they like the new contract. And yet, because of the way the system is set up within IATSE, the contract is passing. Now, I don't think, Like, the Electoral College is deliberately corrupt. Like, it was built to preserve minority control largely as, like, a slavery deal. The Electoral College (laughs) should be abolished. I don't think IOTC deliberately set the system up like this on purpose. I think that it actually, like, once it's explained and you're like, oh, it would make sense that every individual IOTC like, district would get to vote and then those votes would be totaled. I can see the argument. That makes sense. Especially, IOTC was formed in the early part of the 20th century before it would have been easy to count everybody's votes. I do think this is an opportunity where IOTC should really take this moment to change and say you actually need a majority vote of all members to pass a contract. I hope IOTC makes that change because I think it would be really important. I also think it's really important to recognize that 98% of people voted to strike, 49.6% of people voted to accept this contract. So there's a real mismatch between the contract that was agreed to and where the workforce is on IATSE, and what kind of changes people want to see. So I think it's it's big. I really hope IATSE changes this because this shouldn't happen in three years when another contract is up. But I also think that this is a real inflection point where a lot of workers who work in film are like, no, this, no, we we need to make a change. Like, it'll be interesting. The next internal IATSE elections for like board seats will be fascinating. I think.
4: Yeah, those numbers really do tell a story. I think it's fascinating to see that. You know, like you said, half of the people who voted to strike, or a little more than half of the people who voted to strike, truly want significant change. And so, what is the, you know, what's the avenue for that at this point? If the vote's done because of the electoral vote, the basic agreement, the new basic agreement is passing. Minor changes are being made. Do you have? I mean, have the any two. Sense of, there's like, two the, avenues. Yeah.
0: Right. So, one avenue, which I'm not recommending because I don't think it is strategically useful at this point, is a wildcat strike. Now, wildcat strikes have been strategically useful at lots of points in history. And so, I'm not saying they're, they're never useful. I don't think it would be effective here. But a wildcat strike is basically when a group of union members say, the union is moving too slowly for me and we're just going to strike without union authorization. And that has been a powerful tool. You know, there's a reason why there are high schools in Appalachia that have the wildcats and wildcatters as their mascot and wildcatters like that is for unauthorized strikes. That is basically union members saying, Nope, you're not moving quickly enough and we are ready to strike now, and We're going without you. I don't think that would be strategic here. That's not what I'm saying, but that is an avenue that like if a bunch of union members wanted to, and you could certainly see something like that. I could certainly imagine a scenario where an individual production could do a wildcat strike. Like that's effectively like we saw the beginning of that on rust, right? where the camera, the union camera crew got together and were like, this is dumb, we're not doing this. And they were like, okay, you're all fired. And we saw what happened. That's not the only reason that happened. There are many factors in that. The other thing that can happen, and we, I think we saw this in the WGA in the 2008 strike, is you know the WGA had a very, they hired a former, I think it was a CBS executive, to be the executive director of the WGA in the late 90s with the hope that, oh, we'll get a studio person and they'll know all the other studio people and they'll be able to advocate for us. And it didn't work out. They were basically just a buddy of the studio system because those were the people they lunched with. And the WGA didn't feel like they were well represented. So they fired that. A whole bunch of writers got together, got a new board elected. This was the Patrick Verone era. Patrick Verone was just a Futurama writer and was like, "No, no, 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 WGA can do more. Got elected with a whole bunch of other people to the board, similar to what we're seeing going on with the WGA East and West now. And got rid of the old executive director, hired a new executive director that was a union organizer. And they were like, okay, we want residuals. This is really important to us. We're going to get digital residuals. And that's what led to the 2008 strike, which went on for more than hundred days to get digital residuals, which is what is now keeping so many people fed through this pandemic. And that was membership saying, okay, well, leadership is not where we are. So we're going to get leadership to where we are. And I, I would be surprised if we did not see some really interesting IATSE elections honestly, where membership gets super involved based on this experience and says, okay, well, you know, because the WGA strike is fascinating because like literally even Verone, there were some points that they were going to settle on and they went back to membership and were like, hey guys, we're ready to settle on this. And apparently, especially over DVD revenues, Verone was like, I don't know if DVDs are going to be a thing. I think we can let this go. And membership was like, no, no, you get back in that room and you get us DVD money. And I love like, and Verone talks about that in interviews, which I think is a really nice, like open admission of like, I'm an imperfect person and the membership really guided me. And I think we're in a position right now where IOTC leadership hopefully is really listening to membership does not want to work these hours. I think that's the clearest walk away from all this to me is nobody wants to be working 15, 16 hour days and 76 day weeks anymore. It'll be interesting the next IOTC elections.
4: Yeah. And I, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend yesterday and I'd be curious to hear you know your guys's input on what you're what you're hearing from the street you know like your contacts who are in IATSE I mean a friend of mine and I were chatting that you know she's really disappointed in the results of the of the election but also feels like you know all of us kind of in the pandemic went through this moment of just being on social media all the time and being just like moving more towards a really activist way of thinking and like realizing that change is possible but now kind of feeling like we're back in real life somehow and like maybe that kind of optimism, like hoping that that optimism will hold, but feeling like, do we have the power to actually create change? Somehow it felt like when we were all just in our homes like reading stuff on social media, it felt more possible. But I think she and I were saying like, the possibility to create change lies in civic engagement right and what you're talking about Charles is upcoming elections that's an opportunity for people who truly want to make a difference to get even more involved beyond just voting and actually like run for a position and and start to make things happen which i think is really exciting and i hope more people start to consider that you know
1: the union members i know voted no and were worried about this happening they were confident and i no, most of the union ed- uh, members I know are editors or in post-production, who I talk to regularly about it. And as it happened, they were saying, this is bad. This is what's going to happen. They were predicting this outcome. They were saying there is a better deal to be had. They were saying that they don't like that this is an electoral college, essentially. And it's they're being told that this is the best they're going to get, but they think they can get better. And so it kind of felt like this slow motion thing happening. And then it happened. And they were disappointed and upset, but also not super surprised. I think the thing I'm curious about is why the leadership, the current leadership, felt that this was the best they were going to do. I wonder what they know or what they think, and if somebody feels like they have an answer to that or or something. But to me, it's, it's curious. Sometimes I think that one of the problems is that writers who get residuals, obviously, Talent on screen talent, there's a crossover, right? Between like sometimes you're a producer and a star, or you're a producer and a writer. There aren't that many producer editors, right? Um, there aren't that many producer cinematographers. I think that there's a business model here that doesn't allow for residuals. This is my suspicion. There's a business model that is not not exactly thriving, that may not allow for residuals to be paid out to everybody who deserves them, and that it's about maximizing a a slim profit margin. And I think that that's sort of where my mind goes. And I think that the powers that be in the leadership of the union recognize that. And they're sort of like, look, we're not going to ever get those things because it wouldn't work if we did. That's what I fear and what I suspect. Now, I don't know if that's actually the case, but this is why I think I said at some point, in more of my typical cynicism, I think that there is not a lot of interest. You'll see a lot of people say, I stand with IATSE, like writers and producers who stand with them, but I don't know how how much they really do in the end. Some of them I think do, but I don't know how much they really do. Stars will post it on Instagram, but what really happens when push comes to shove? Why don't they all unite? That would be interesting, right? If the writers... we're on the same side, truly. I think that there's a reason the writers don't want to do that. But it's a unique divide and conquer, sort of. So those are my thoughts.
3: Everybody needs their own union. You can't, like... Like, there's too many issues. I mean,
1: yeah. I'm not saying that... I I agree. I'm not saying they should be in one union. I'm saying, like, actually unite in their interests. Or in in, on this line. But,
0: yeah. I mean, the issue with the... The issue with the writers versus the workers is, you know, I mean, it's the same thing that goes back to Who Needs Sleep, the documentary by Haskell Wexler, where he talks about, like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the studios were mostly owned by people who lived relatively near the studio and knew what they were doing. And if you went to them and you were like, oh, hey, I need more time, you would get it. By the 80s, all the studios were owned by international conglomerates that looked at everything as math and were like, oh, okay, this is costing too much. You get less days. And what filmmakers who understand what it takes to make the movie would do is they would just shoot longer on those days because you're paying for the big actors by week, not by hour. And even though you're paying the crew by hour and you're paying overtime, you just eat that in order to get more time with your actor. And that's always going to be something that keeps the directors and the writers who want to make the best possible movie on a separate side from the crew that want to work for eight hours and then go home and see their family. And so like... You know, it's always a tricky thing between those unions, but there's a lot of coordination. You know, the WGA and, and SAG and, and the DGA work together really closely, and I think there was a lot of support. I personally believed the support actually from IATSE. I think that everybody was really feeling burned out before the pandemic, and I felt like a lot of the people. You know, there was just a profile of the New York in the New York Times this morning Rob Micklehenny, and they mentioned he was wearing a IATSE shirt in solidarity, and I was like. I, I firmly believe that Rob McElhenney would probably like to shoot more reasonable hours on It's Always Sunny. Like that seems likely to me. Like I don't know how many hours they shoot. At this point, they've been going fifteen years, they're going till 18, they're probably <laughs> shooting they probably have a pretty good system down at this point. So I don't know. I I do not think the profit margins in this industry are as small as people would like you to think. If your industry can't survive with everybody working a forty hour week and making a living wage, well then your industry shouldn't survive. And like this is my industry too. I wanted to survive, but I have to believe there's a way where everybody could be home at night to tuck their kids into bed and eat and not go into debt and have an industry. I got to believe that.
4: yeah and like Josh yes. said, it's 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 the it's the current business model. that's the issue, but that doesn't mean that we can't change it.
0: Yeah, I heard someone recently on Twitter was like, "Wow, it's really interesting to realize that all of the streamers are just a reverse content on teen. And I was like, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it—it's absolutely a (laughs) team, and like it's like that. We're we're, just—we're—they're all just waiting for the others to die and see who's the last one standing.
1: Bets? Should we get a betting pool going on no film school?
0: Never bet against Disney. That's all I'll say.
1: (laughs) But Apple is—is solid. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) is
0: Apple making money on streaming?
1: No, but they have so much money elsewhere that I feel like they can they can put up a fight. When is Disney just going to acquire
0: Apple? You you know how to make a small fortune in the film industry, right? Start with a large fortune. (laughs) Too real. (laughs) I like that. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the No Film School podcast. Everybody want to plug your plugs? I'll start. I'm on the internet at charleshane.com. You can see me on Instagram and Twitter at charleshane. There's an I in there. And I got another podcast called Distorted by Glamour, which is just like film labor stuff. Check that out.
3: I'm at, at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. I'm at Jason Hellerman on Instagram, although I'm really just Instagramming my dog these days. So if you want to see him get there, happy to be here. And as always, check out those San Diego Comic-Con articles to see what we learned at the panels, uh, you know, and relish in not being there, but get a chance to be there through our words.
4: I'm Catherine Tolentino, writer, director. You can find me at Katherinetolentino.com, And I actually am going to plug a podcast that I made a couple of years ago, by and for women working in the film industry, all about how different women got their start and where they are today. It's called On Her Terms. And there's still some episodes on at uh, iTunes, SoundCloud. So check it out. Nice.
5: Uh, I'm Todd Blankenship, cinematographer, writer at No Film School. And you can find me on Instagram at Am I a Filmmaker and uh, YouTube there as well.
0: Can I also plug Kath being willing to ask me for a favor introduction on that podcast? You get like the only reason I knew that Kath was podcasting is because she was like, hey, I heard you know this person. Can you introduce me to them for my podcast? And that is how I knew that Kath did podcasting. And that is how I recruited her to be in this podcast. So like, yeah. never be afraid to ask for stuff, because that is how people know what you do. Yeah, good point.
1: And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. Thanks so much for listening. You can find everything we talked about at more no be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Send us your questions at editor@nofilmschool.com. At Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Meta? Us on Twitter. Meta? <laughs> like us on Meta, wherever Meta finds you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we thank you so much for listening.